Everyone got one? We'll be in the book of Numbers. If you want to open up there, Numbers chapter 27. We're going back a little bit. Actually, uh, Wednesday night, Jim did our teaching and we did Numbers chapter 30. So I'm going to jump back and look at a couple of things that I think are uh, intriguing. Things for us to know, pay attention to. Numbers chapter 27 and verse 1. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. These are the names of his daughters, Mahlah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle, that big movable temple that they carried with them through the wilderness as they were moving in the Sinai and in the wilderness, moving toward ultimately the promised land. Verse 3 says, the, the daughters now are speaking, they say, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against, together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Furthermore, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and he has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Pray with me one more time. Lord Jesus, we keep running across these interesting, uh, challenging, and unique situations that we don't quite firmly grasp or understand. Our culture, Lord, is so different than it was 3,500 years ago. And so I pray, first off, that you would give us understanding as we study the scriptures. Help us to know what was going on here, historically, so that we have some sense of these things. But more than that, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you would break down barriers, even barriers, Lord, that we ourselves may have set up, that you would break in and you would say what needs to be said to each one of us individually, and that you would speak to this fellowship collectively, that we could learn about you and draw near to you, seek to be like you, Father, and live out our lives here with that purpose in mind. Fathers, we pray for our children. We pray right now. Show us Jesus. Show us your grace. Show us your love. Help us to understand you better in these passages before us. I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I did it. I went out and saw the Da Vinci Code. How many people have seen it? Come on. Fess up. Let's see. Who's seen it? Not very many. Okay. Sermon's over. Have a great day. Thanks for coming. I'm done here. Wow. So nobody's seen it, huh? Did you see it, Heather? Okay, well, shame on you. <laughs> At least I was going as a pastor trying to check out the heresy, you know? <laughs> no, it was great. I got
got the trench coat out, the dark glasses, the hat, you know, and snuck into the theater. No. Um, went to see it. I wanted to see it. I, I felt like I needed to know what was out there, know what was being said, how it was presented. You, many of you know that I read the book as well. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me how the Christian community will respond and react to things, how we'll so often easily get upset about things. Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11.19, he makes the comment, or it could be 19.11, you, you figure that one out. But he makes the comment, there must also be heresies among you, so that the truth among you can be made more evident. The whole concept, what he's saying is, yeah, there are lies out there. Don't fear the lies. Man, when you walk in the truth, you have nothing to fear. And so I think things like the Da Vinci Code we need to be aware of. We need to have some understanding of because ultimately it opens awesome doors of witnessing opportunity. You come out of a movie like that with a friend who maybe isn't a Christian at all and, and it opens up questions. Do you really think that happened? Did Jesus marry Mary Magdalene? Do you have some proof? Can you explain? How do you really know the Bible is what it is? How do you know that it, it's not just some fabrication of a, of a, of a Caesar? Constantine. How do you know he didn't just put it all together to try and make Jesus more than he was? And we've looked at these things. We've talked about these things. Especially the fact that in the Da Vinci Code, it diminishes the deity of Christ. Which, by the way, that's what the world attempts to do. And that's what all ultimately cults do. We've talked about they diminish Jesus. Make him less than he is. Make him simply human. A good human. A great teacher. Wonderful man, sure. But not God. See, the deal is, if Jesus is God, then we got a whole different situation we're dealing with in the world, don't we? If he's just a man, he's just another leader, ruler, teacher, whatever. Follow him if you want to. It doesn't make a difference. But if he's God, if he truly was God in the flesh when he walked on earth, it changes everything. And I submit to you that we all need to know fully that we be aware of who Jesus really was and really is. It will change your life eternally. So I went and saw it, and there's that, that heresy in there about Jesus being less than God. I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's another subtle heresy, one that kind of secrets its way in there. Interesting. It's the elevation, not the diminishing of Jesus, the devaluation of Jesus, but the elevation of what's called in the book the sacred feminine. In fact, the main character in the book, in the movie, is an author of a book called The Sacred Feminine, tracing back feminine paganism all the way back to its earliest roots, all the way back to Babylon, and his, his whole thing is that we've lost connection to the sacred feminine. Brown's fiction claims the church single-handedly usurped that original divine place of woman. Listen to this quote. This is directly out of the Da Vinci Code, page 238. Quote, The Holy Grail represents the sacred feminine and the goddess, which of course has now been lost, virtually eliminated by the church. The power of the female and her ability to produce life was once very sacred. But now, <laughs> for those of you women who have given birth, was that a sacred moment? Huh? Just wondering. Maybe when you saw the child, it was special. It was, it was touching. But in the moment with the blood and the screaming, that, that to me wasn't sacred. It was just gross. I mean, I went through it three times with my wife and it was all I could take, you know. I mean, I stayed up there by her face, hold her hand, hang in there, honey, don't put me down, you know, with the, with the thing and the ooh and the ah. So, to me, something's lost there, but let me read on. It says, it was once very sacred, but it posed a threat to the predominantly male church. 
And so the sacred feminine was demonized and called unclean. It was man, still quoting from the book, not God, who created the concept of original sin, whereby Eve tasted of the apple and caused the downfall of the human race. Woman, once the sacred giver of life, was now the enemy. People are reading this and watching the movie and they're thinking, is that true? Can that be the case? Is that the deal? Was the church really just a big male chauvinistic thing? Now we can trace back 3,500 years to debunk that myth. And we're going to do that this morning. But how do you answer this specifically? Two questions. These are two questions that, that I would ask to answer this question that's raised in the book. Number one is, are we capable of divinity? If at one time woman was the sacred, woman was divine, let me just ask you, in our world today, are we, man, woman, either one, capable of divinity in and of ourselves? Are we divine? You ever been a jerk to someone? You ever had someone be a jerk to you? You ever done something just incredibly stupid? I'm not going to have you raise your hand because I'm afraid it'd be just me again. (laughs) But I'll tell you something. You can figure it out for yourself. But I am not divine. Far from it. I'm a moron. I do all kinds of stupid things, all kinds of non-divine things. I sin and I fall short of the glory of God, which is what the Bible tells us about man. Part of our problem in the world is we think we're divine and then when we mess up, we just sink into this guilt. Like, why can't I be better? Well, because you're a sinner. Why can't I get my life together? Because you're fallen. So am I. That's the way we are. In the movie, Tom Hanks plays his character, Robert Langdon. And at the very end of the movie, he says, and this is not an exact quote, but it's very close. He said, maybe it's not so much that Jesus was human. Maybe it's just that all of us are divine. And what was it that Satan said to Eve in the garden? Eat this apple and you can be like God. That's the first lie. You can be divine. So Eve ate the apple and didn't become divine, committed the first sin. Adam quickly followed afterwards, and you know that story. No, there's only one who's divine. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. 3,500-year-old Hebrew Shema is what it's called. It reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. We are not divine. As a matter of fact, we're in desperate need of the divine to save us, to elevate us out of our sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, says the Father. Romans chapter 7 verse 24, the Apostle Paul, the great Paul, Leader in the early church, amazing missionary, said the following, Wretched man that I am. And by the way, don't listen to them because they're going to argue with me through this whole thing. It's what they do. We tested that on a Wednesday night a few weeks back. They were just going off real loud. I said, okay, wait, listen. If I stop, they'll stop. And I stopped and it was silent. You're just trying to get the last word in there. Tweet. Paul says the following, Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No, I'm not divine. I need the divine to be saved. And there's one God and we ain't Him. But in answering the current Da Vinci dilemma, we also have to ask another question. The first question is, are we divine? The second question is simply, what does the Bible really have to say about man and woman? So my favorite passage is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. This is a fun one just to read together as a married couple especially, because it will take you round and round with each other. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. Paul says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Alright, your husband's going, yeah, that's the deal right there, you hear that honey? For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Yes, alright, hey it's in the Bible sweetheart, (laughs) read it and weep. Therefore, even more so, he says in verse 10, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Don't want to offend the angels, sweetie. (laughs) So I'm over you. Then Paul says, however, which I don't like that word in this context, however, and listen to this, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. He says, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So Paul says, stop this chauvinism either way. The feminism and the chauvinism, it's bunk, it's sin. You need each other. Man, you need woman. And we go, yeah. Woman, you need man. All right. (laughs) But did you notice the catch in that phrase? Verse 11, let me read it to you again. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Where is that the case? In the Lord. In the Lord. It's wonderful, gang. We're all stuck with each other in the Lord. We're connected in the Lord. The problem comes when man and woman try to live outside of the Lord. That's where the struggle is. When the Lord isn't at the center. I did a wedding just a couple of weeks ago. Enjoyed it. It was a wonderful wedding. But I was told in the wedding not to be too religious. I hate when they say that. You know, so i got to get it in wherever I can. Sneak little things in there. And I, and I did. But the whole point was what I wanted to do is I wanted to stand there and say, you want this marriage to work? Put Jesus right in the middle. We've talked about that. Wives, the more you love Jesus, the more you're going to serve and love your husband. Husband, the more you seek and love Jesus, the better husband you're going to be for your wives. That's the deal. In the Lord, we're not independent of each other. We need each other. We recognize this. But outside of the Lord, we go right back to the original curse that Andrew mentioned a few minutes ago. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In birth you will bring forth, or in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you hear me understand this that was a curse that was not the way we were meant to be we were not created that way Adam and Eve when they were first placed in the garden Eve was not placed to be ruled over by Adam but God says listen Eve in this sin in this fallenness your husband will rule over you your desire will be for him in other words there's going to be struggle from this day forward your marriages Your families, your relationships, man and woman, suddenly we're going to seem like we're from two different planets. Mars, Venus, whatever. But the Lord says this, it's a curse, 
It was not God's intention. It was not what He wanted for us. It was the result of sinful female and male choices. It was a curse. Now I tell you this for one reason. The only liberator, the only liberator of man or woman is God. He's the liberator. He is the great liberator. Outside of the Lord, it's all power struggles and positioning and pointing of fingers. In other words, it's sin. But in the Lord, there is freedom. In the Lord, there is liberation. And that's exactly what our story is about this morning. Numbers 27. Five significant women had a problem. I want you to see how the Lord goes about settling it and solving it. Verse 1 of chapter 27 again. The daughters of Zelophehad... Part of the reason I wanted to teach on this is I just wanted to say that name several times. Great name. Zelophehad. Zel, for short. <laughs> the son of Hethmer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. In other words, an important guy. When the Bible draws out a lineage like this and mentions all the names and points out a person, this guy was of some standing in the tribe of Manasseh who was the son of Joseph. So this is a big deal. But the daughters of this guy came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Mahla, Noah, Hagla. What a name. Milka. The guy must have been a farmer, you know. Hagla and Milka. <laughs> and Terza. You know, just let me just point this out to you. Hagla actually means partridge. It doesn't mean pig, so she was all right. It was good. It wasn't like the father looked at her and goes, Whoa. <laughs> Call her Hogla and pour some slops. <laughs> but Zelophehad's daughters had a problem. Here we go, verse 2. It says, They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin. And he had no sons. That's the problem right there. He had no sons. Why is that a problem? You're jotting down notes. A few things to jot down. I'll start off here in the story with, number one, a patriarchal problem. A patriarchal problem. What these five sisters are doing here, what they're asking for is to be treated fairly. They're coming before Moses and they feel like something unfair is going on and you need to understand and I see these five women as heroes because they were doing something that was unheard of in the culture of the day. By the way, no culture in that day would afford them this right. What right? To, to gain the inheritance of their fathers. Ladies, if you lived in this day and you were one of these five daughters, guess what? If dad dies, there's no inheritance for you. There's only one way to receive or be blessed by an inheritance at this time of the world's existence. How's that? Through your father. Or through a brother. Or through a husband. Or possibly even through a son. In other words, through man. The patriarchal age. This is around 1500 B.C. 3,500 years back, the patriarchal age was, bottom line, life under the rule of the fathers or the rule of men. Ladies, that was the deal. And these five daughters didn't know what they were going to do. As the people were all going to come into the land of Canaan, everybody in Israel would have an inheritance, father to son, father to son, all the way down. But their father died and there were no sons and there's no way to keep the inheritance in Zelophehad's family. And the girls are saying, what are we going to do? They're living in a time of a patriarchal problem. It was worldwide. 
Gang, it was the code of the entire God-fearing, the entire world, God-fearing or pagan, either one. It stated that a woman's significance, and by the way, we still have this problem today, that a woman's significance comes from her father, or her husband, or her brother, or her son. But remember, this was not God's plan. This was the way of the world, not the biblical model. God did not teach this. It was a human structure into which God begins to insert His divine plan that woman would not get her significance from man. Now plenty of you ladies have been in situations where that's been the case. You've drawn your significance from a relationship with a husband who was a jerk. And so you feel like nothing. You draw your significance from a father who is absent and so you wonder who could ever love you. And that's a patriarchal problem. But that's not God. That was not His way. From the beginning, God would call every single woman, daughter. Every single man, son. That's God's way, His plan. But in this patriarchal structure, we see Zelophehad's daughters. But it's interesting, these daughters, they're each one specifically named. They're all named. And in fact, not just once here in Scripture, Mahla, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Terza, not just once, but three separate times in the Bible. Numbers 27, Numbers 36, and also in Joshua 17, we will see these five ladies mentioned. All five of them by name. And in Scripture, that's highly significant. Because it was countercultural. Because, as Paul would later say, 1,500 years later, in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. It's a new game. It's a new day, Paul says, where women, you don't derive your significance from a man anymore. You derive your significance from the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you, who loved you, and who would elevate you to a place of incredible importance in His plan. That's Jesus for you. But that's the patriarchal problem where only the sons were heirs. And these daughters whose significance suddenly we find out is not limited to their dad, to their husband, brothers, or sons. And again, ladies, please, and gentlemen as well, don't ever forget that. Don't draw your significance from another sinful human person. Draw your significance from the Lord Jesus Christ who created you and made you and loves you. Paul put it this way, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he said, Man, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ. What did Paul know? He knew that living for Jesus was worth everything. That nothing compared. That man, if I can walk with Jesus, that is what my life is for. And the rest of it, it's just junk. It's rubbish. It's garbage. I don't need it. And to live in Jesus. Awesome. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But again, let me just say these five ladies should have a great place in the history of women. You're not going to see their names listed up among you know, women's liberation or, or women's you know, fighting for their rights. You're not going to hear about Hogla. <laughs> I don't know if it's just the name or what, but these are five of the earliest liberators, if you will, of women. So we have a patriarchal problem, but number two, we see a daughterly devotion, and this is interesting to me. Did you notice where Zell's daughters met with, with Moses? Where did they meet with him? Look back at verse 2. 
before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And this was not done. These are courageous gals. And they're stepping up. They're coming to the tabernacle to seek help from the Lord. They go to the tabernacle because that's where the Lord is. And verse 4 goes on and says, They're speaking, Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. In other words, shouldn't our father's inheritance just remain with us? And this was a bold, radical new idea. You won't find it. If you look back in Babylonian law and, and copied manuscripts, things that we have archaeologically, it's not there. Women had no rights. If you look back and try and find it, you won't find it in Hittite law or Egyptian law. The Code of Hammurabi, which is a, an, old, a whole, an old law, an old code, you won't find it there. Women had no rights of inheritance. It wasn't just among the Israelites here. It was worldwide. But I think these daughters knew something of their father. And I'm not talking about Zelophehad. I think they knew something of their heavenly father. Something's got to be different with this God. Something must be different with this Lord who is leading us through the desert, who has protected us, who has covered us with a cloud during the day and shown us light by the fire at night, who gave us water from the rock, who, who fed us manna as we were struggling and brought quail. Something different about this father. This is a father who provides for his children. And so I see in these five girls a daughterly devotion as they come to the tabernacle, seeking out the one who can help them, the Lord. And Hebrews 11.6 tells us without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And He is. You go after the Father, you seek God, He will reward that. He loves that. He is the Father who can't wait for His children to come before Him. It pleases God to know or to, for us to bring our needs to Him. He's the doting Father who loves to respond to His kids. Which is why my daughter Hannah, where are you Hannah? She's over where? She went to kids? Oh man, I was going to embarrass her. Oh well, we'll do it without, do it without her. It's why my daughter Hannah, and I may have shared this a little bit before, but she has a way of trying to get me wrapped around her finger. And I know exactly what she's doing. She did it just last night. She came up and she sat down beside me on the hearth and put her head on my shoulder and said, I love you, Dad. And I said, all right, 15 minutes on the Internet, that's all. I just go right to it because I know what she wants. I love you, Dad. Yeah, you can play a game. I love you, Dad. Okay, half an hour more before bedtime. It's all right. Dad, I know. What do you want? You know? But I'll tell you what I haven't done. I haven't told Hannah to stop coming. I haven't asked Hannah to stop putting her head on my shoulder or to stop telling me that she loves me, even if she just kind of wants something. I love when she comes to me. I want her to come to me as her father. I want that relationship with her. And God does with us. You know, sometimes I think, I'm, I'm just too selfish. I can't, I can't talk to the Lord about this. Well, you knock it off. He wants you to come. It pleases Him when you come to Him. Whatever your need, He might have selfish needs. Okay. He knows that. But he's more concerned in the relationship that you have with him, and so he wants you to bring it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And those of you Bible students, you may be aware of this. The phrase is ask, seek, knock in the Greek, or literally keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. 
For to everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, when his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? There you go, break your teeth on that, buddy. Or if he asks for fish, will he not give him a snake instead? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? So ask Him. Go before Him. Just like the daughters of Zelophehad, they took the time, they went to the tabernacle, they sought the Father, and it pleases the Father to dote on His daughters and His sons. Now, going on, verse 5, and I want to take a quick little rabbit trail because it's important to our understanding of the Lord. So we have uh, a patriarchal problem. We see a daughterly devotion. Now we have a mosaic model. Number three, a mosaic model. Verse five. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Okay, big deal. Move on, Rick. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Moses brought their case before the Lord. Why did he do that? He's been walking with the Lord for some 40 years, leading these people. You don't think Moses would have an answer by now? Couldn't he just function on his own? We called him several times flat-nosed Mo. Because the Bible tells us that every time a problem comes up, Moses is face down before the Lord. Because he is constantly going back before the Lord in prayer. He doesn't presume to know anything. He just takes it to the Lord. Moses brought the case before the Lord. Now I was thinking about this and considering how did he do that? How was this done? How did Moses seek the presence of the Lord and talk to him and get response from him? And even more so, how did they do it after Moses was gone? How did they really know God was talking? See, that's kind of a question we ask from time to time, isn't it? How do we know that's the Lord and not just me in my own head? How am I sure? There is an interesting way that they got back from word from God on this. If you recall, and if those of you who studied through Exodus with us, you know that the high priest had a very interesting outfit that he wore. He wore as part of the outfit an ephod, which was kind of a, a, a vest of sorts. All of the colors of the tabernacle were in the ephod, and on the ephod was a breast piece. That breast piece held 12 stones on it, precious stones that were placed all together, each one describing or each one representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there was this ephod, on, uh, ephod and on the ephod was the breast piece. And then the Lord said into that, in fact, Exodus 28, verse 30, He says, You shall put in the breast piece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, not the Umathurman. We've talked about that. It's not. It's a different thing. The Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What's the deal with the Umim and the Thummim? What are these things? The scholars have debated for centuries what exactly was going on there. It's thought by some that they were stones that were used for casting. That maybe the Umim and the Thummim were like in some pagan cultures stones that would be smooth on one side and rough and concave on the other side. And to find out the will of the gods, you would take those two stones and roll the dice and see how they land. In Chinese culture, and Ron Allen tells a very interesting story of an old pagan Chinese ritual where an old lady came in to seek answers to a prayer. And the way it worked was this. A woman would come before the priest, and Ron Allen actually witnessed this happen. An old woman coming into an ancient ritual came before the priest of the pagan religion in China and asked for something, prayed for something. And the way you could give response was either yes, no, or you're an idiot. That was it. You'd roll those two, and if they landed, both of them smooth side up, that was the God's way of saying yes to your request. If they both answered concave, rough side up, that was the God's way of saying 
no, we're not going to do that. But if one landed smooth side up and the other one landed concave side up, it was the God's way of saying, you are a moron for bringing this request to me. How stupid of you. I'm not even going to answer that request. Now think about this. This devout Chinese woman going to the gods with a heavy request on her heart. She comes in and shares it with the pagan priest. He takes the two stones and he rolls them. And that's exactly how they landed. You are an idiot. You foolish, foolish person. I'm not even going to answer your request. Ron Allen stood there and watched as this Chinese woman walked out of the temple weeping. Is that what God's like for you? You go to him with a request and he goes, I don't have time for you. I'm still dealing with Katrina. (laughs) What's the matter with you bringing that kind of stuff? How simple. Your problems mean nothing to me. You come to me in prayer? Come on. I'm God. I've got things to do. That's not the Lord. And by the way, I don't believe that was the umim and the thumim either. Josephus, another possibility here. Well, wait, before I get to him, two verses about how God responds. Listen to this, Jeremiah 14, 17. You will say this word to them. Ladies, listen. Gentlemen, hear this. God says, let my eyes flow down with tears night and day. Let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely infected wound. What the Bible indicates is you think you feel sorrowful when you're struggling in life, God weeps for you. God's tears pour down his face because he loves you so much. That's the Lord. That's the God described in the Bible. Revelation 21.4 tells us He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's what God has in store for us. That's what He wants for us. But right now, when you weep, He weeps with you. He weeps with you. Well, Josephus gives another idea about this thumim and thumim. He wrote and he believed that the stones of the ephod itself were the umim and the, or the urim and the thumim. But God would cause the stones on the breastplate to spell out words in response to the questions of the high priest. You got these stones and kind of like, you know, close encounters of the third time. Do, 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 do. Oh, that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> and they can figure it out. Okay, it's all spelled out there. I don't think that's quite right either. I don't believe that's the way. They weren't casting stones. They weren't the stones spelling things out. I believe personally, and I can't totally verify this, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, Scripturally, there's some reasons for it. When revelation came from God to the high priest, the way that the priest would know that the revelation was of the Lord, as the priest began to give answer, the way he knew he was speaking from God was the breastpiece itself, the whole thing, would light up in dazzling color. That those stones literally would just glow. And that way Moses and Eliezer, as they brought their request before the Lord, and Eliezer speaking for the Lord would, would share, would speak, or Moses would speak, that breast piece would be glowing, would be lighting up. You go, Rick, that sounds awfully hocus pocus. Listen, Urim in the Hebrew means dazzling lights. Thumim means splendid perfection. These two things, the, the symbol of, of knowing that God is speaking was the lights and the perfections, the perfect light. What's the application and why do we go down this little rabbit trail? Listen, 1 John 1.5 This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. 
And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sins. Walking in the light, in truth, in honesty, with full disclosure in the way we're living our lives, not hiding things, not tucking them away, not doing things in secret, but is less fond of saying, let's walk this out in the light. I really like that phrase. Let's just be open and honest with each other. So how do I do that? How do I walk it out in the light today? Well, the high priest would come into the tabernacle and pray and that breast piece, if, if this is what happened, would supernaturally begin to light up and it indicated the priest was speaking revelation from God. But listen, today the Hebrew writer tells us, Hebrews 1, verse 1, that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom He also made the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. The Son. When we need to seek direction, when we desire revelation from God, we can seek the perfect light, who is Jesus Christ, both in His word and by His Spirit. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has grounded to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. John 14.26 Jesus said the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now watch this. Quickly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Over in the New Testament 1 Corinthians 2 I want you to see this with your own eyes. I want you to understand something that you have here because in the day of Mala and Hodla and Terza and the other two sisters whose names elude me at the moment, in, in their day, to get revelation from God, you had to go to the tabernacle. You had to go to the high priest. You had to ask the question and see how God responded through the priest. The priest was the intercessor. He was the intermediator. What about now? Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. This is awesome. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He says, now a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or understood. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Listen to verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And this knocks me off my feet. But we have the mind of Christ. Listen, when you come to Jesus and give your life to him, he indwells you. Paul says you have the mind of Christ with you. So you don't have to go to Pastor Rick. You don't have to go to one of the elders. You don't have to go to another human being. You can go directly to the Lord and say, Father, I need revelation in this. I need understanding. I don't know what to do. Help me understand. Teach me your ways. Well, Rick, you really think that works? That God would actually do that kind of thing? You bet I do. I absolutely do. Well, back to the story. We're almost done. Hang in there with me a few more minutes. Numbers 27, verse 6. 
So they bring their case to Moses the tabernacle. Moses takes their case before the Lord. And verse 6 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall then transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. So not just for these five girls, but in any situation, in in any situation, if there's not a son to pass along the inheritance to, it goes to the daughter. And this is radical. It's brand new. It's never been heard before. It's not been heard in Canaan or Egypt or any other known culture in the day. But culturally speaking, and I shared this a few weeks back, every single place in world history the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, the value and standard of women has been elevated. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that the Bible is ancient and archaic and patriarchal and has no, it's not for women, it's a male chauvinistic thing, you say, well, <laughs> that's not what history bears out. History shows us when the gospel goes, women are appreciated more, are honored more, are held up, and are elevated in their position. Christianity and the Bible are not patriarchal and sexist. God is the one who eradicated our man-made barriers, while at the same time he maintains the uniqueness of male and female. And that's liberation. Not that we give up who we are. Oh, i got to tell you this. What is it called, Cheryl? In, in Southern California now... There's a whole thing. We were walking around this place called the Irvine Spectrum down in Southern California, and we kept seeing these guys that we were absolutely convinced must be gay, wearing really tight jeans and, and just the way they were looking, very very effeminate and walking along and, and all that. We're going, oh, they must be gays. And a friend of ours told us, no, they're probably not. There are a lot of guys in Southern California now who are metrosexuals. <laughs> That's what I did. I went, <laughs> really? Serious, metrosexuals, not gay, but just acting like they are. <laughs> what is the point of that? <laughs> I don't get the whole. I just go. It gets so twisted, and I watch these things going on in the world, and I think, yeah, what I want to do is I want to be a man, but I want to act like a girl. <laughs> Give me a praise. Man and woman puts them side by side, says, You're my sons, you're my daughters, I love you both. You both in the Lord are one. And by the way, you can be who you are in me, ladies. You can be women. Men, you can be men. Warriors. Mm, Me old hunt and fight. (laughs) And that's God for you. Be who I created you to be. But know that in me you have a special significance, whether male or female. It doesn't matter. You're all one, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. Now, you've heard the story. This is given to the daughters. Now you've got to hear the rest of the story. Chapter 36 of the book of Numbers. See how this ends. It's awesome. Because now we move into the godly grace. In your outline, if you're jotting these things down, a godly grace. Godly grace. Chapter 36, verse 1. A little problem arose. The heads of the fathers of the households of the families of the sons of Gilead, of the sons of Makur, of the sons of Manasseh. So it's the same Manasseh group here. They came near and they spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the fathers of the households of the sons of Israel. 
Verse 2. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. What's going on? Now all the uncles of these girls have come forward. And they've got a concern. They've got a problem. And they say in verse 3, But if they, one of these five girls, marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our father, and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. Verse 4, And when the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Okay, what, what's the deal? They're just saying, look, if they get the inheritance of Zelophehad, but then they marry outside of Manasseh, someone in another tribe, they're going to take that allotment of land with them, and Manasseh, the tribe, loses out. So what do we do? Well, Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying... The tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. Now watch this. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. In other words, keep it in Manasseh. Now this is not, you know, like, like today, West Virginia, with one-eyed child or something. We're talking about, there was a purity here. <laughs> There is a purity here, but verse 9, skipping ahead, says, Thus, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall hold each hold his own inheritance. And just as the Lord commanded, so the daughters of Zelophehad did, Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad married their uncle's sons. Okay? It's the way it was then. And again, kind of like when you... Oh, I probably shouldn't go down this road. Okay, well, kind of like, you know, as dogs are bred, early on in the breeding process, the dogs can be purebred and smart and intelligent, but have you seen an Irish setter lately? <laughs> These are the dumbest dogs in the entire world. So that's what I wanted, but I wanted a big, dumb Irish setter that just ran around the property. Roll, roll, roll. But they're just morons, and they're morons because they've been bred so long down the line, Okay. Which is what we would be if we were doing the same thing now. You know? But in this day, and at this point, God is developing and creating a nation. There is a purity in, in the bloodlines, and God is maintaining that. That's what's going on here. But it's beautiful. He gives this great answer. He says, you know what, I don't want to rip the tribe of Manasseh off. If they marry outside the tribe, I don't want them to be ripped off. But I want my daughters cared for. So what does he say? Verse 6. Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. Again, what? What? Listen. Let them marry whom they wish. This was not done. You didn't do this. Who decided who the woman would marry? Anybody know? Dad did. Dad said, I've got it set up. You're going to marry that big-nosed guy over there, and that's the deal. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> the parents would set it up. The woman, at this point, had no right to choose who she should marry, and God just goes right over the heads of Israel, blows them away, and says, let them marry whoever they wish. Just keep it within Manasseh. Manasseh's blessed. The daughters are blessed. <laughs> but this is amazing to me. Why can they suddenly marry whom they wish? Because they are daughters with an inheritance. Don't miss this. The inheritance was huge. 
The inheritance meant that you have freedom. It wasn't just money. It was status. It was independence. And these five girls, the first five in the history of Israel, now have the inheritance of their father. And they have freedom that comes with the inheritance. Why do I tell you this? Because, gang, we are Zelophehad's daughters. We are these five girls. You and I. What are you talking about, Rick? Where's Zelophehad's daughter? We were of those who had no inheritance. We didn't have the inheritance. We were outsiders. And suddenly God says, no, I want you to have the inheritance. And by the way, with the inheritance comes freedom. Comes choice. Comes independence. Comes what I've created you to be. With the inheritance. Paul says it this way. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope. And without God in the world. That was the Lophahad's daughters. They had no hope. And Paul says. But now in Christ Jesus. You who formerly were far off. Then you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household, guess what? Now you got an inheritance. And it's not land. And it's not position. And it's not money. It's an inheritance of eternity as children of the Most High God. Where's the law that has daughters? And I remind you again that Paul said there's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you belong to Christ you are Abraham's descendants. You are heirs according to the promise. Father, what a great promise it is. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us these, these wonderful women. Lord, we just we want to honor their names today and just say how awesome it is that they had the faith to step forward when they did. But more so, Father, that we can see through them our own position and place in this world. Outside of Jesus, we have no hope. We have no inheritance. We have no future. We have nothing to lean on except ourselves. And yet, Father, as we lean on ourselves, we fail ourselves constantly. But Lord, you promised us an inheritance in Jesus Christ, and it's that inheritance that we claim, we desire to have, and we praise you for. 